Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Campbell. I'm a doula in Washoe County, Nevada, a Medicaid provider, a lactation educator, childbirth educator, and mom of 18. You can find me and connect on doulainreno.com. Remember, give a shout out to those who are brave enough to share their stories with us on how they have become parents. Let's dive in. Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. Today I have on someone that I actually know not well, but I know you. We've seen each other. Melissa, how are you doing today? I'm great and I'm really excited to be here and it is nice to see and spend some more time with you as well. Yeah, I'm really excited about learning your story. Every time like I've I started doing this special release of people in Northern Nevada, right? women who are parents and entrepreneurs. And every time I'm like, how have I known you this long? And anyway, so it's really fun. It's a really fun thing. Jump in and tell me how you became a parent. Um, well, I came a pair, I became a parent by surprise. Um, I was actually living away from my husband. So we were married and together, but I took on this really crazy job um at the French pastry school in Chicago Illinois while my husband was a teacher in the Maryland Virginia DC area and I, it was like a dream come true dream of mine like a job that was offered so I took off left lived into Chicago came to visit on Thanksgiving so I'd been gone since July um and then I left and went back to Chicago and came back home on Christmas so exactly basically a month and felt a little funny and so I was home for four days and I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. So I found out um, on Christmas Day and that was in 2010. Um, and so I was not supposed to get pregnant in any way, shape or form. That was not what was supposed to happen. It wasn't the plan. Um, I, my husband was elated, which was really nice to see. Um, but being a woman working in the pastry and like food and beverage world and being a chef, it's pretty demanding and tough. Um, and actually what happened is I went back to Chicago to try and wrap up affairs and move back home. And in that process, ended up having a miscarriage by myself in the bathroom away from my husband. And so it kicked off this just interesting question of, am I ready? Do we do this now? He was so happy. My career was on a track. What are we doing? Um, and so I moved home, licked my wounds and decided that, yeah, I, I want to be a parent. Um, and so we just took some time to heal from that experience of having a miscarriage of sort of all the hopes and dreams that come with that and all the uncertainties. Um, and then six months later, um, I got pregnant and we did it in a space of like not really overthinking it. It was more just like, we're going to continue with our lives and whatever happens, happens. Um, and so in October of 2011, um, I was pregnant and I gave birth to a very healthy baby boy in May of 2012. Um, and so he is my one and only, my one and only sunshine. His name is Max. And um, there may have been more children if I had not had such a crippling case of, I think what we know now is PMAD, but that was not the words that were being used back in 2012, at least not in the region that I was getting cared for. Um, and I had all the signs and I said all the things about kind of struggling, not feeling like myself, feeling really nervous. And it just, it never really... Everyone just looked at me and treated me like it was normal. Like, oh, this is just like, it's normal to get the blues and it's normal. Like being a parent is hard, um, which it is at times. Um, 
but so uh, long story short, it took about three years to really get a name and support for it after I think both my husband and I being like, hi, I need help. You need help. Like we're not going to make it if something doesn't change. So I started therapy, got a lot of helpful language. Um, uh, and that really changed everything, uh, at least from the ability to enjoy being a parent. So that's the short and quick of it of how I became a parent. That is the short and quick of it. So when you became pregnant the first time surprised and mm -hmm. we, have, we have another doula in the area who was a chef and couldn't do it anymore after having mm -hmm. a baby. So like, I, I get it. Like, yeah, it's a very common thing that sometimes the career you've chosen, you realize that's not going to work when the miscarriage happened. And this is something that women don't talk about enough, like how devastating that is. You said, you know, dashed all your hopes and dreams. Um, how did you notice any of the PMAD starting then? Um, probably. I mean, I had a really difficult relationship with my first pregnancy. And this is something like I'm wide open about, but often people don't ask. Um, so one, I love that you're like even asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Um you know, when I saw the pregnancy test, like I wanted to be super excited that it was positive and it was like a validation, like I'm healthy. I have the ability to get pregnant. This is great. I was 29, 28 or 29 at the time. Um, but it literally couldn't have been worse timing. I was about to be doing research and development. I was helping an international competitive pastry team work six to seven days a week to go fly halfway across the world to compete. Like I was mm. at the top of the game that you could be in. And I was so excited to learn. I was excited that there was the possibility of me going to France to study with a different chef. There were all these things that were on the horizon that I desperately wanted that did not hold room for being pregnant uh, you know, and having a child and, and fostering a family. So I was so torn because I wanted to be excited, but it was not the right timing for me. And the seeing my, my husband's face and like seeing how excited he was and he's six years older than me. So, you know, he was in his mid thirties and just sort of ready for it. Um, it was just a really conflicting time. So when I had the miscarriage, I left my, oh, and I should say this was a wild 72 hours, but I had a miscarriage. They formally gave my job away to someone else, assuming that I was pregnant and wouldn't be able to keep my job. And then also got evicted due to a complicated situation around having a dog in a condo. So all three things happened in 72 hours, <laughs> which. And you were alone. Uh, well, I, yeah, it was at least, I was in a relationship, but I was physically alone in Chicago like, yes. when that happened. Yes. So, yes. um, so it was just one of those like grand, like clean sweeps of the universe that for whatever <laughs> reason was like, hi, nope, we're not doing any of that right now. <laughs> so it was sort of a difficult time to sort of, I'm someone who sees it and goes all of these things. It's not so much that they happen for a reason, but it is the given circumstances. Like that was a clean sweep job, home, like everything. So I was like, okay, there's something to be gained here, but it was a complete loss of identity at that point. And so I had a friend who worked for a really awesome company in the Northern Virginia area. He knew I had just recently like moved home. He knew the situation. He was like, I know you're really sad. Would you come 
we just need some like customer service support. You basically get to listen to music eight hours a day, put your headphones in, listen to music and basically respond to some emails. Do you think you can do that? And I was so devastated and confused and upset and was like, I took it. Um, and it ended up being a really great company and a place I ended up being at for eight years because they were equal parts fun and hard work. Um, it was like the most renegade um, sort of place to be in the, it was like the least corporate corporate place I'd ever seen. Previously, I'd been in pastry and theater. So, you know, I, I didn't just like switch to the complete opposite of like a really corporate environment. Anyway, um, so I do think it started some probably then only because so much changed and I didn't have a good way of processing. I didn't understand my nervous system then the way I do now. I didn't know how to voice my needs or label them. And I, at that point, I wasn't even comfortable like having needs. I was really like a very like kind of steely exterior person who was like, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I can figure this all out. I do it all by myself um, and it will be fine. Um, so I would say I definitely had some low points. I remember feeling a little bit emotionally uh, recovered in the sense that I could even contemplate getting pregnant again by the fall. So like late August, September. And it's funny because I wasn't someone who tracked my period or was aware of all that stuff really. Um, and I, because I had these specific dates of how everything unfolded before, I was like, oh, I literally know how to time this. So we could just, I know what to do. And like, literally we were pregnant within six weeks. So, um, you know, so it was easy and I was fortunate in that way, but yeah. I then was then nervous about having pregnant a second time. I had the miscarriage at 12 weeks, which is kind of late for a first, like a first trimester situation. Um, at least that's what was reflected to me by the medical staff around me. Um, but so I was nervous the whole first trimester. I was just uncomfortable and um, was still sort of uncomfortable until he got here safe and sound. <laughs> so. That was my next question. Cause a lot of the times, and if something doesn't go really well even mm -hmm. subsequent pregnancies but I would think especially your first one you get pregnant again and then you realize oh I have fear behind this mm -hmm. same situation recurring mm -hmm. so I think that that's really really normal um you had a lot of stuff going on so okay you change jobs your husband's there you decide six weeks I'm like oh my gosh that's very fortunate super easy yes yes so the second pregnancy went fine. Everything was fine in the pregnancy. And how was that? Yeah, generally. So the first, um, I was very nauseous, like super sick. I didn't throw up. I just felt sick constantly for the first trimester. Second trimester, um, I got a lot of feedback that I was like the enviable pregnant person. Um, like everyone thought I was so cute and I was like, everyone's touching my belly and everyone's like, oh, you look so great. It was just one of those things that I really wasn't into a lot of that. And I was still actually very uncomfortable being pregnant. Like the idea of, of being pregnant, like I, did I want a kid? Yes. But I've not been around anyone who had given birth. I've not been around it. I wasn't raised in a big family. And it was just one of those things that was like, it feels like this giant black hole I'm about to jump into that everyone says I'm supposed to know what to do. And like, I'm supposed to know how this works. And I literally don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but so generally very healthy, um, felt good. By the end, um, they had a one of my later appointments. Um, he was... I guess breach is the term and um 
he his kidneys looked swollen and so they had recommended they were like listen as soon as he comes out he needs to see a specialist about his kidneys and they didn't really say much they just said here's the sonogram like file please take it have them see it he needs to see a pediatric urologist so I wasn't like concerned I just didn't really know what it meant because they were so clear and adamant before he'd even like come out of me um so I knew that and it was like okay but generally he was healthy and it was fine um I ended up having a c-section which was not at all what I wanted and I think mostly because I didn't have anyone around me who knew how to advocate for like what I wanted. And I don't know that there would have been a different outcome. I, my uterus is, I think it, the term is retroflex. So it's like almost completely like upside down. Mm -hmm. um, he was really, really, really high up under my ribs. Um, he just like, didn't really drop. There was no real pressure on, you know, parts of the body to open up. Um, and I think that there was definitely like an emotional component of me holding it in and holding it together. Um, ah. So I, um, I'm trying to remember the I dilated, I think, like only, I can't remember the numbers. I dilated more than I effaced, but the amount of effacement was like, like almost nothing. Like they were just like, you are not opening up. Um, and it was weird because in the moment I was like, I, is this something I can control? Like, I don't understand. And I, I don't, still don't have an answer to that, but I know I've done enough healing and enough work that I understand that it that I probably was just like terrified and holding everything in and just not in a space of trusting because I didn't know enough to feel like I could trust anything. So that's what I think happened. Um, ultimately ended up being a C-section, uh, everything I didn't want. Um, I was on Pitocin for 18 hours before <sighs> with no meds. So I was on Pitocin for 18 hours with no medication. And it was when she came in after 18 hours and I, you know, they wouldn't let me eat and I'm like using the combs and I'm breathing and I'm sleeping for like 10 seconds at a time thinking it's been an hour. My friend who was with me is like, you closed your eyes, you've not been asleep. I was like, oh, wow, this is such a weird liminal space. Um, but uh, yeah, she came in and was like, yeah, you're only dilated like three or four centimeters and you are not at all effaced. And I just at that point had been like, and they did a, they stuck a probe in to check the, the intensity of the contractions. And they're like, no, they're real contractions. Like you should be moving and you're not. And I was like, I'm done. Like, I'm just, I don't, please just get him out safely. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to resource myself for like whatever endurance would be needed from this moment forward. And I was just like, and it was clear. I think now when I think about it, it was a doctor who didn't answer my questions fully and I really didn't push her and I think she was pretty used to just like it goes a certain way and we're going to c-section and that's how it goes um and it's fine you know what he's here he's healthy um I have a seashelf all the things I never wanted it's fine you do not want it <laughs> nope, we should never all want like, it <laughs> you know, we should all get like a tattoo like go mm -hmm. in and tattoo yeah, our little our little our scars our hip to hip scars yeah. Yeah. And that makes things hard. I mean, when you have someone who's supportive, who makes sure the questions are getting answered and that you understand, I mean, look, if there's 10% of, of C-sections, the 10% rate is what there was 50 years ago or, mm. you know, in other countries and we're doing 33, although the hospital where we are at is closer to like 24, which is great. But mm. then you're like, okay, from 10 to whatever, 
that's 14 to whatever percent that are being done where what else could we have done to mitigate the situation so that we could have a different outcome and i think there's all of these spaces in what both of us do i'm sure that where it's like it shouldn't be like that how can we make the change and it's really slow so that's unfortunate i i work really hard with my clients like if if you want the 100% natural birth and you end up with the C-section, which is the polar opposite, how can we get from here to here and you feel great about your decision? Like there wasn't, we've done everything that we can and there wasn't another alternative that we knew about. So that at least if it happens, because I don't know if this was the case with you, this is kind of my next question. Sometimes we can feel guilt or failure or Mm. Our bodies aren't working or like there's all insert things here, but there are negative emotions in a situation that really in that moment, you couldn't have asked the doctor more things probably, or done anything Mm -hmm. like at some point, Mm -hmm. this is going to move in that direction. So how did you feel about all of that? Um, Yeah, I was pretty, I mean, I was super relieved that he had arrived healthy and they were like yes his kidneys are fine he still needs to be seeing someone so just to sort of clarify what that was he had nef- hydronephrosis of the kidneys at kind of a higher I think it's on a scale of like zero or one to four and he had a three in one kidney and a four in one kidney and his ureter upon further investigation like a year later his ureter also was um like swollen and had some scarring Um, And the reason that that was a concern for a baby so young and so brand new is that basically it's like a, like reflux of urine. So urine sort of going out and then the little valve or whatever, not staying closed. So then when he's done, then like urine that could potentially have bacteria is then like kind of getting sucked back up into the kidneys and then potentially infecting his kidneys, which as a newborn, like incredibly dangerous. And uh, what they tell you is if he has an unexplained fever, rush to an emergency room like that was the guidance of having a newborn it was like I have this baby you say he's fine I have an appointment with a specialist in two weeks and in the meantime if he has a fever rush to an emergency room which was like okay cool not at all stressful or worrisome or like I have no idea um and he did a couple times he did like we did pretty well and we got lucky in those first two weeks nothing crazy happened but um it took like five years total for it to resolve itself. And there were some interesting moments in the first three years. Um, But so immediately after, like, yeah, it did feel like a failure. And, you know, I'd read all the books, I'd done hypnobirthing, like by the terms of hypnobirthing, I had failed everything um, and like not done it, um, you know, which, you know, I have different feelings about now where I'm like, listen, I don't know that it ever would have worked for me and that is okay. but it was a lot. And I, he had, he was born two and a half weeks early and he was kind of small. Um, he was tall, but he was just like skinny. And I don't, he didn't have tongue tie, but he, it's like, he just needed a little more time to be a little bigger to latch properly. Um, and I don't, I did not have the lactation support that I should have had that I know I should have had now. Um, and I should have been pumping right away. And so we really, my milk came in, but he was not available or around or able to like latch and pull it out. And then I wasn't pumping enough in those first couple of days. I didn't, I didn't understand. Um, so we had a tough time and he actually lost weight. Uh, I lost a lot of weight when we first came out. So then that feels like a failure as a mom. Mm-hmm. Like my job is basically to like keep your your diapers clean and hold you and feed you. That's my only job. And I am trying to feed you and you are losing weight. And now the pediatrician is concerned about you. Um, 
So we had to move to like half bottle, half breastfeeding at the very beginning, which was very difficult and like definitely felt like a form of failure. I went back to work. I was very fortunate. The company that I worked for had a good, uh, good for the United States, like meh for like what other countries have available, but good in the sense that I got 12 weeks um, and of time off. Um, but eight or 10 of those weeks were at um, like partial pay, right? So it was like short-term disability, but either way, like so much more than what so many other people get. So he was born in May and I didn't go back to work until like August, end of August. Um, so I was really fortunate that I had time with him, but I was crushed as a human and I was suffering in ways that I didn't understand. And so it was actually a pretty painful time. And then when I went back to work, the milk supply dropped and it was really difficult and so stressful. And I was having so much postpartum uh, like anxiety issues um, that like the milk wasn't really coming in. So I had to stop breastfeeding by six months. And that's probably what felt like the biggest failure. And I think my PMAD got way worse after. So I quit breastfeeding by December of 2012 and was just like trying to come to terms with it, right? Because I was also trying to, I'm an ambitious person. Like that was why I was doing the pastry stuff I was doing anyway. So it was like, cool. Well, now I'm, uh, I'm go I've gone back to work. There's this opportunity where the company will move us uh, to Reno. They're opening a new location. I have the ability to like maybe offer my family more if we take this opportunity. Um, yeah, so then a lot happened. So then we relocated. So I quit nursing and then we relocated from the Northern Virginia area, like Maryland, DC to um, to Reno, Nevada. That's all I got here. Woohoo! I have a couple questions. First yeah. of all, all your all your links to everything are in the show notes. And it, when you go to your website, it says "sex, death, Reiki." <laughs> yeah, yep. I'm like I opened it up and giggled, just like yeah, I just did. That's now, the right? hope. That's okay. the hope. So, for people that don't know, PMADS is postpartum mood and anxiety disorder. So. I'm, I'm, you're moving to Reno before he's a year old. So that was a while ago. And at some point, yep. cause he's 11 now. So you've been yes. here for about a decade. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. At some point in there, you said it took about three years. You recognized that you had PMAD and you started to get the help that you needed. So I want to talk about that. And I really, I, I, again, it's something that's not talked about much. So I want to talk about like the lows of that and then how you got mm. out of that to kind of streamline mm. that process. Cause I know there's a lot and also sure. segue into your business, because I'm guessing, even though I've never, I, I don't know this, that part of you moving in this direction and having your own business, which is very different from culinary, um, <laughs> We've gone way away from that now. Like that probably ties into healing from PMADS is my guess. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, um, it's related to a lot of things, but that's definitely a piece of it. So for, so, and again, what I'll say is like, no one used the term PMAD, right? Like at this point, when I, people were seeing, when I was seeing a doctor, like my OBGYN after birth, you know, it was, they just were looking for um, postpartum depression. Like it was like PPD, even the paperwork I had was talking about PPD. It wasn't talking about anxiety at all. And that was like the distinction and why I felt so different. Like I was terrified to leave the hospital the five days after he was born. And I, like, I asked to stay an extra day in the hospital just because I was like, I think I need a day of rest. Like I can't, cause what I couldn't verbalize was like, I cannot go out there. Like something terrible is going to happen. And then we, 
like leave the hospital and my husband needs to pick something up at Target. And I will never forget walking in with him and just feeling like everything was so aggressive and abrasive. It was so loud. It was so bright. Like I definitely needed like a little bit of a like nest or cocoon to be just quiet and like with my kiddo. And so I knew something was wrong that day, but I had, I just didn't have words for it. And so the lows of it was just feeling so alone. I mean, it's isolating anyway, because I was pumping to desperately try and breastfeed him, but I had to pump to get the milk. Like he didn't really breastfeed from me very well. Mm. Um, And so the lows were just the isolation and like feeling alone. And there was something I just could not verbalize. I mean, there certainly were just changes in the hormones. My brain was functioning differently. Memory's a little different. So just the ability, and I'm a, as you can tell, probably a fairly verbal person and verbal <laughs> processor. Um, and I just, it wasn't available to me in the same way. And, you know, he did his best, but uh, I mean, quite frankly, and we're both okay with this, the traumas that my husband and I experienced as children came with us right up into that moment. And that's a half of like what was going on because there was no like having needs in the way that I was raised. And my husband is the most loving and amazing uh, person. And he is a resolute Montanan. Like, you don't cause any problems. We don't ask anything. We put our heads down and we do our work. And so he's just like, I just thought that's how it how it goes. And like, that's what happens is that it's just hard and you're sad and it's okay. And it'll change one day. Like, that's just what he thought. Um, so he wasn't really able to be a mirror to go, something's not right. Like you are not yourself. And it's one of those tough things mm. that the people closest to me, literally by year three, when I was like, hey, I started therapy. I think this has been going on. Everyone then reflected back to me. Oh yeah, you haven't been yourself for like three years, but like no one said anything. And I have very close relationships. I'm not a person at distance with people. And so I think I've always like there's a little bit of a still like a wound there, but it's like a thing I don't understand. Like, how did no one say, hey, you're just like not yourself. Can we talk about this? But I get it. Like, it seems critical or it's hard to do. And so many people are not as direct and as assertive as I am. So the lows were just being alone. And it's almost like it was almost more painful when it came to surface to have everyone then tell me, oh yeah, you've not been yourself. And we don't know what, like, you know, it's just so strange. I was like, why didn't you say something or like what happened and yeah. a piece of this like part of the wound and the my stuff is like I my mother and I have a very difficult relationship we love each other very much but it's a difficult relationship and so she tried to be present and she was there but she was not someone who could have reflected hey expect this or don't expect this like that was not a role uh that she could play um so you know it's just one of those things it's like it's just how it worked out and I wouldn't change it because it absolutely taught me so many things I mean I was very sad I was really overwhelmed I didn't have words for the anxiety that I felt about everything from just driving down the road to what radio station I had on to which clothes he wore to which shampoo we're going to use or which soap I'm buying or which household cleaner like the litany of things that you have to decide is just a person who's functioning day to day everything became so like critical and my brain would just go on this unhelpful spiral of what if, what if, what if, what if, um, because 
in a lot of my healing in the last 20 years, I've also learned I have, I'm neurodivergent and I have OCD, but I have OCD that manifests in a different way than what we sort of think about sometimes. And so it's about things have to go a certain way. So there's like a sequence to getting things done. And I do them based on like a certain outcome. So sometimes I go on a very quick spiral of like, well, if I do this, then this, which means this and this, and I want this, so this, and it's like, we're just trying to figure out what bath, what, like what detergent to buy for laundry. And I have, I have taken five minutes staring at an aisle in the grocery store, like just stuff like that, that I was like, this is all not helpful. What is happening? Um, so, I mean, I guess that's the lows of it. And yeah. I, I, came out of it. I did not, I just, I had a talk therapist who did cognitive behavioral therapy. It was a good fit. She was a good fit for me for the, for five years. And she helped me get through a lot. Um, and at that point I was like promoting up and doing the like traditional American, like corporate lifestyle thing. It was like, we bought a house. I have a job. I'm getting promoted. I am running a team. I'm successful at work. I like my coworkers. I have a kid. He's in sports. Like I'm doing all the stuff that says I'm doing it right. Um, but like lots of things were missing all along the way. I just was like, is this it? Is this like, is this it? Oh, is yeah. this life? Like, yeah. and then feeling the pressure, I think that comes with our gender and our, our society right now and the way that I was raised where I just was feeling ungrateful. And I was like, you should be grateful. Like I'm healthy, I'm happy. But it was like, yeah, but I'm, I'm unfulfilled. Like I, something, is there something wrong with me that I feel unfulfilled? And it really became this like deeper dive. Um, and quite frankly, so let's see here at this point, 2012. So my husband and I have been married for seven years. Around 2015, 2016, I'd gotten support and help post like birth and we were in a better spot. Um, and we'd also been together at this point. So 10 years of marriage in 2015. And our sex life was okay. But I sort of was thinking, be better than okay right like okay like and like what is okay like how do I casually ask my friend like hey how often are you all having sex or like and and when you have sex is it good or is it just like hi I'll take what I can get because the kids asleep or like how do I ask you this and how do I just walk up to someone and be like so do you do the same position every time like is it the same sequence or like do you only have sex in one room because for whatever reason whatever magical chemistry it's like oh, like I'm I'm just curious and how do you even begin to ask people these questions and so some friendships have the ability to talk really openly and some don't and then it, you know but i I just realized I had so many curiosities and I wanted a really full and vibrant life. And so I knew I was curious and I didn't really know how I was going to figure out more. Um, and I, my husband, we were both in agreement that like, Hey, it's, we we're, we worked ourselves into these patterns and we have two different styles or kind of frequency desires. Right. So one I'm a response arousal person. So like I will become aroused or realize I'm interested in having sex with you when I'm like, oh, I have something to respond to. Uh, and he is the person who needs to be attended to. So we have someone who's waiting to be attended to and we have a person who's like, so is that happening? Um, and then two, I have a very high sex drive, which, you know, um, sometimes culturally women are sometimes assumed to be um, those who don't want to have as much sex or like, you know, and there's a piece of that that might be true, right? 
And of course, then my husband is under the, some of the gender expectations of like, oh, you're a dude. And like, your masculinity is in your virility. And so you probably want to have sex all the time. And like, you're a boss at work and like, go home and please your wife. And he's a much more energetic and sort of sensitive person who's like, I enjoy sex. I also don't need it. Like, I can think of there are other things that I, that mean a lot to me. And so that disparity in having a four-year-old child and jobs where you're promoting up and trying to do all the things on the checklist just felt like lack, like it was lacking. Um, so we knew we were in agreement. This isn't the way we'd want it to be. We love each other. We're there's got to be a different way. And so we probably spent like three years driving ourselves crazy, like trying to figure out how to do our, like make it good for us in our own way, which was fine. Uh, everything from like, hey, we scheduled it. We will have sex on Saturday mornings before Max wakes up because uh, we usually are awake by 6 a.m. So we got six to seven, like this has got to happen, right? Or, oh, Friday nights at 8 p.m. after Max goes to sleep. We have from 8 to 10 p.m. This is our window for intimate time. So we tried scheduling, it didn't work. Um, tried being like, well, let's just say, let's just try and have sex maybe more than once a week. Let's just see if that happened. That didn't work. Like uh, the, the amount of things that we tried, like, um, but we also didn't have good vocabulary or tools for talking. So when I say it didn't work, it, it that's with the most shallow attempts at how to help ourselves um, because we didn't know what we didn't know. And then in 2018, a friend of mine, it was a couple, we were hanging out for the day. Our kids were hanging out watching movies and we were going to play like board games. And one of the couple uh, had said, oh, there's this thing we're going to this afternoon that's like four um, couples and sex and sexuality. Do you guys want to go? And we knew them pretty well. So I was sort of like, yeah, sure. Like not even thinking how deeply intimate or like vulnerable a space we might be like going into with this couple that we're like friends with um so it was a presentation on the erotic blueprints um and it's a framework that was created by a woman named jaya and it blew my world wide open i was a different person when i walked out of that class a different person and I saw a future that was possible with my husband because we had language to talk about it. It was the first place someone gave me language that I felt seen and I felt not crazy and I felt understood. So briefly, it's the idea that there are sort of five categories, buckets, or like ways of being in relation to sex. Um, you have people who are energetics, you have people who are sensuals, people who are sexuals, people who are kinky, and people who are shapeshifters. Each of these uh, ways of being um, have superpowers and shadows. And generally, if we assume that a person experienced no culture, religion, region, uh, or any other influence, that naturally they'd probably be a shapeshifter. But we fall into different behaviors and things based on what's approved by our society and by people around us and by the systems we're born into, right? So if like you grew up in the Christian faith and it is not okay to have sex before marriage, then like that's what you're going to do, right? Or if you're taught sex is only for procreation and not for pleasure, okay, that's the belief of your culture, but it's going to inform the decisions you make and what you figure, what you come to know about yourself. I was raised Catholic. Um, I had an okay relationship with my faith and but I didn't like a lot of the tenets and a lot of the things Catholicism handed to me and had always sort of struggled with it um 
But so in this framework, it was sort of like, oh my gosh, the term shapeshifter, like as soon as the presenter said it, as soon as they said it, I was like, oh, I'm a shapeshifter. And I immediately understood why my husband couldn't find me in the experience of sex sometimes and why I was making it difficult for him. Like it was the most beautiful realization. And quite frankly, I think without, without meaning to be harmful, my husband just was like, oh, okay, Melissa. Like, what? I don't know that he thought I was being dramatic, um, but you know, I was sort of like, I literally could have sex every day. And I really do think he thought I was like being hyperbolic and I was being literal. And it felt like I was starving. I was like, how do I explain to you that like I have these things and like it, my brain works better. My hair looks better. My skin looks better. Like if I have sex regularly, I'm more creative. Like everything is better. And also it's not fun to turn to someone and feel like you're pressuring them or constantly poking them and be like, hi, what you doing? Hi, what you doing? Hey, what are you doing now? Like that's not fun or sexy at all. Um. So anyway, so finding the blueprints was a place that was just like, there's a different way for us to talk to each other. More importantly, there's a different way for us to touch each other. And there's a different way for us to sort of meet each other in this liminal space of sex. And it's a place that we deeply enjoyed together. And there's a ton of pleasure to be had. But we were both doing things that were creating hurdles for the other, not actually honoring and witnessing our partner. And... um there was shame and discomfort with just the the reality of the other person to unpack, right? Like I was feeling ashamed of how much I wanted to have sex and just doing some of the work that comes with the blueprints to unpack my own shame and to actually decide, do I feel embarrassed about who I am? And I came to the answer, oh, no, I'm not. And so how can I talk about this differently and what are the places and what are the things I need um, you know, so I have figured out that I'm a little bit kinky. I'm a, I knew I was essential. Um, I didn't realize how energetic I was, um, but I'm definitely a little bit kinky and I'm a shapeshifter and it's a ton of fun because there's like no limit to what's possible. Um, but it can be really overwhelming for my partner. So I also now hold space that like, oh, it's a lot that I'm asking him to do. And it's a lot that I'm asking him to understand or how to meet me. So, um, so just finding That's that amazing. It, yeah, so I've been talking for a long time. So so sorry. That's the that's okay. Thing. It's amazing, and it really. I mean, when you're with somebody for a long time, those things all shift. Having a baby, having a miscarriage, mm -hmm. getting older, mm -hmm. healing from a C-section. Like there's insert thing things here. Working out more, working out less, all of those things, and you can lose that. Um, the way you feel intimate with that person, or it changes so much that if you're not like growing up together or making those changes together. Yes. It, it feels 100. very distance. Well, and I, I felt want... divorced from my body after yeah. giving birth, right? So even mm -hmm. just figuring out, oh, wait, how does my body feel? Like what changed? What's different? So even that journey for myself to like accept how my body had changed to yeah. accept uh, what it felt like, because even the period after birth, like what was sexually satisfying or the pathway into arousal was very different. The first year after Max was born and yeah. then was different for the first four years and then mm. has, you know, since changed again. So even in that, like now what I know, it's like the, the pathway to arousal for like recently birthed bodies or birthing bodies is like a whole, there's so much potential so there, different. but it's not attended, but it's, and it's also not talked about or attended to. Yeah, I, I, it's something I actually do talk to my clients about it and tell them that 
it's going to feel different and be different. And it's kind of exciting because if you're aware of it, it can be like starting over again mm -hmm. without being afraid of like losing your virginity and stuff like that. But it can be like your first time again. And then you have breasts that are leaking and all like, it's very yes. different and that can be uncomfortable or intimidating, or it can be really fun yes. and exploratory. And <laughs> you're right. People don't talk about it at all. And that's part of the problem. I, we could talk forever. We're both Check. talkers that could talk forever, but I, so I want to end on your business because I so mm -hmm. believe in shameless self-promotion. And I know sex is part of it. You have mm -hmm. Seth, sex, you're a death doula and Reiki. Mm -hmm. And so yes. sum up your business now with that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I work. So sex, death and Reiki are all three places you go. They're liminal spaces that are portals to like really deep inner knowing and healing. And so between all of the things that I went through in my like time growing up as a young kid, the things that I went to is related to my birth and then unpacking some of the shames and things I carried, like beliefs that were handed to me, the, the tools of sex, death and Reiki of the erotic blueprints confronting and considering and being prepared for the end of life and then reiki as an energetic like healing energy um it's given me this space to sort of meet people where they're at and honestly the question is where do you want to go and how do you want to get there because when we know ourselves like when we deeply know ourselves and when we accept ourselves i find that we show up in spaces far more confident and far more compassionate and I think those two things are really needed in all spaces, at work, at home. So it gives you the ability to see someone for where they're at and say, I see you. And you being you does not diminish or change me being me. And so when you know yourself, because I think when you understand, when you truly understand a thing, there's no reason to be upset. That's what I have found. Um, so when I really understand where things are coming, where my husband's coming from is related to our sex wife. I'm not angry anymore. And I can now be a partner to work towards like uh, behaviors and solutions that work for both of us. And so for me, I work with people in all sorts of ways, like couples that have been together for a long time who want to go from good to great. Um, I don't work with couples in crisis. Like if you're at the point, like I often refer out for that particularly. So I'm for the couple going from good to great. I'm for the individual who maybe has been, um, in a space because there are lots of single people there and lots of single people can have amazing sex lives you can have an amazing sex life as a single person with yourself or partnered but there are lots of different things that can be happened and so what i love about it is that there is a way for you to live a curated and vibrant life and when you confront the feelings that you have and know yourself as related to sex when you're clear about what it would take for you to let go peacefully at the end and when you use the modality of Reiki to support those two things. I think people can have, like, I've never been more alive. I've never been more um, fulfilled. And I've never also been in a world that's been as challenging as it is today. But I know that there's so much healing and possibility in these three, um, in these three contemplations that I just felt impassioned enough that I was like, I'm going to leave the J-O-B and I'm going to go do this. Uh, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. <laughs>
Melissa, thank you so much for being on and sharing. I'm so grateful for how open and willing you are to share. I, I appreciate you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for asking the question. And it was a pleasure to chat with you today.